So today's topic would be redundancy. I've noticed there's been quite a strong focus on employment law in my video so far. That's not going to be the only parts of law I'll be discussing. It's just something I've had to be doing recently because of uh, my master's exams and also because I feel like employment law is something a lot of people will care about. So the next videos hopefully won't be solely focused on employment law, but here's redundancy anyway. So the very first thing that needs to be borne in mind is that a redundancy is a dismissal. It's rather common for people to treat redundancy as something better than being dismissed and dismissal being a firing, so they view redundancy as devoid of stigma, whereas a dismissal is stigmatised, which it's just not accurate. A redundancy isn't an alternative to a dismissal, it's a manner of dismissal. The Employment Rights Act gives redundancy as one of the fair reasons for dismissing an employee, and it is actually important that this is noticed because if an employer attempts to soften the blow of a dismissal by saying we're making a employee redundant when they aren't, it can actually severely hurt them in the end because, strictly speaking, expressing it as a redundancy when it isn't merely the employment tribunal to conclude that it was an unfair dismissal. So. Employers trying to be nice by framing a firing on the ground of, for instance, incompetence as a redundancy can actually hurt them. And additionally, it's important to note that redundancy is a statutorily defined aspect of law. Section 1391 of the Employment Rights Act 1996 states, if the dismissal of an employee is wholly or mainly attributable to the employer ceasing or intending to cease to carry on the business for which the employer was employed, or in a place at which the employee was employed, or the need for employees to perform a specific kind of work or to perform such duties at the place at which the employee was employed has ceased or diminished, or it is expected that it will do so then they will be treated as being dismissed by reason of redundancy, i.e. that their job has become redundant. Redundancy therefore requires a great deal of planning. The very first question an employer would need to consider when planning a redundancy is, is it actually necessary for there to be a redundancy at all? The, dif the difference between a business reorganisation and a redundancy scenario is it's a very fine line, but they're treated completely differently. And if redundancy can be avoided, it should be. Where other alternatives are available to, to an employer, but they opt to simply go for redundancy, it's highly likely the employment tribunal would need the employer to justify having chosen a redundancy over other reasonable alternatives available to them, or else run the risk of accidentally 
performing an unfair dismissal and therefore being liable. If the redundancy is decided upon, there needs to be a timetable drawn up for the process of selecting the people who will be made redundant and the time in which they should be dismissed. It is preferable for the number of employees that need to be made redundant to be decided at the outset because failure to do so can extend the process as you need to figure out whether or not more people need to be made redundant. If you've made too many people redundant that is obviously a problem because at least one of them would have a good argument that they weren't redundant and therefore a dismissal isn't a redundancy. Just to give an example of a sort of alternative available on a redundancy would be alternative work. A lot of employers will have multiple sites that they operate from and they might not need so many employees at one site but they may be able to offer redundant employees a job elsewhere. That is a viable alternative and that is something that would need to be considered. It sometimes happens that employers will invite employees to voluntarily leave, i.e. to volunteer to be made redundant. It's pretty common for employers to offer an enhanced severance payment or enhanced pension rights to try and encourage this. Usually this would be a dismissal and therefore a potential redundancy, but depending on how you look at it, it could be viewed as a termination by mutual consent. If an employment contract is terminated by mutual consent, then the employee hasn't been made redundant because a redundancy, as previously stated, is a dismissal. It's not the same as a... This is going to be a bit arbitrary, but it's not the same as a resignation. However, a resignation can be a dismissal, a constructive dismissal specifically. But a redundancy does require a dismissal, and termination by mutual consent isn't a dismissal. In Birch and University of Liverpool in 1985, it was considered that it would be a question of fact, depending on the facts of each and every case, whether it is an amicable dismissal, i.e. they volunteered to be made redundant and the employer accepted this and therefore it can be a redundancy, or whether it was a termination by mutual consent, in which case there won't have been a redundancy because there won't have been a dismissal as required. The next important step that needs to be taken is a collective consultation. Employees need to be consulted as a group. If 20 or more people are going to be dismissed by reason of redundancy, then it is required by the Trade Union and Labour Relation Consolidation Act 1992 that consultation with employee representatives be undertaken. Failure to do so will often mean that the decision to make redundancies will be treated as unfair. Where there is a trade union who represents workers, consultation with the trade union will be treated as collective consultation of the employees, as the union representatives will be treated as employee representatives, and therefore they can safely be consulted. This is actually true even if not all of the employees are members of that union. But where there are no trade union representatives, employee representatives would need to be elected by the employees to represent them in the consultation. Although it's, it is a collective consultation, it's simply a consultation of representatives, so it's not 
a consultation of the entire staff, as you might think, based on it being collective consultation. The next question needs to be asked is, does the BIS need to be notified? The Department for Business, Innovation and Skills is a BIS, and if the employer is proposing at least 20 redundancies, but less than 99, well less than 100, not exactly 99 would still be part of this, then the BIS needs to be notified 30 days before the first dismissal for redundancy will take effect. If they're going from making 100 or more employees redundant, then notification needs to be made 45 days prior. The duty is actually pretty easily met, there's a form HR1 which would actually cover notifying a BIS, but employee representatives, i.e. the people who are being collectively consulted, must also be given a copy of the form as part of that consultation. For purposes of redundancy, the pool is a group of employees among which the employer will be making the redundancies. This can be as wide as all employees employed by an employer, or as specific a division as needed. There is in fact a case in which the courts actually stated that a single employee could be considered to be the pool. Although in that case in question, they actually considered that the one employee who was treated as the pool in the redundancy selection shouldn't have been a pool all of his own. So it is possible, but I don't myself know of any cases in which a one-man pool has been deemed acceptable. In defining a pool, it's also one of the reasons why it's so important to decide how many redundancies need to be made. If, you've, you, if you are using a wide pool, but you only need to make a few redundancies, then you're arguably making it more administratively inefficient for yourself, you're making it harder than it needs to be. You would only really need a very wide pool if you're going to be making a large number of redundancies. A smaller pool would be preferable if you're only making a few redundancies. And then you would need to make a selection for redundancy. The criteria that will need to be applied will need to be uniform because obviously holding different employees to different standards when selecting for redundancy will almost certainly be an unfair way of handling the redundancy and therefore the protection given to a redundancy as a fair dismissal will not apply and unfair dismissal may be found. It's sometimes used that there's a matrix with criteria chosen and a score assigned to each member of the pool with the lower scoring employees being selected for redundancy and higher scoring employees obviously being safe. If the criteria is well chosen this can be a quick and efficient means of selection since it gives a very easy way of ranking who would be prime members to keep and prime employees to be made redundant. But caution does need to be taken to ensure that the criteria doesn't amount to discrimination or unfairness. This is actually harder than you would think because using something like productivity or hours worked might inadvertently penalise someone who is disabled and can't work as quickly or efficiently or for instance somebody who was pregnant and on maternity leave 
and obviously be, being subject to a detriment because of a disability or having been pregnant that would be discriminate that is discrimination and although it's not automatically unfair in this case the employer would have to justify the fact that, that they had used criteria that was discriminatory even it this is even if they do it unintentionally or otherwise they may be found to have unfairly dismissed the person on the other hand discrimination based on trade union membership or trade union activity so for instance they worked fewer hours because they were a union representative or they were taking part in a union authorised industrial action. Discrimination based on that is automatically unfair. The employee doesn't need to prove any degree of unfairness simply by being discriminated against because of being a trade union member having engaged in trade union activity. That automatically makes a dismissal unfair. It's therefore very important to choose this criteria very carefully and objective criteria will always be preferable since subjective criteria gives too much room for questioning the fairness of the process. So if you are going to use criteria that is rather subjective of the employees it's preferable if at least two people and um, analyze the data because if multiple people give an opinion it is a lot easier to justify it than if a single person makes a decision based on their own opinions that's a lot harder to justify it's also important to ensure that a tiebreaker is available in case employees get tied for points especially if the tie is at the lower end of the retention and the higher end of the redundancy since two employees may tie for points and one of them needs to be made redundant and therefore a fair criteria needs to be chosen to separate them. Occasionally you will have employers who will use a matrix and discover that an employee they quite like and want to keep doesn't score as highly as they believed they would and therefore add on a new criteria to give them just enough points to survive the process that would make the redundancy unfair as well and that would mean the person who would not have been made redundant had it been uniformly applied but is now made redundant is almost certainly going to be able to make a claim for unfair dismissal once this has all been performed, employees should be consulted individually. Generally this will mean that they are called in to a meeting with a supervisor or whoever is in charge of redundancy and the matter is discussed with them. They should have obviously been informed why the meeting is taking place that it is not good practice to blindside employees with news that are going to be redundancies and they're being considered. If there is alternative work that can be offered to employees, it should be mentioned at this meeting. The employee can decide how they want to make the offer because obviously they should offer it to all people who would be able to take it up and perform that role. 
since if they can perform the alternative work, there's no point in making them redundant because they actually aren't redundant, they could still be put to use. So although it doesn't need to be offered to every single one of them, it should always be offered to every one of the employees who could take up the role. In order to explain alternative work a bit better, alternative work is work that is distinct from the work the employee is currently undertaking, that is reasonably possible they could perform. If they took up this work, then it's unnecessary to make them redundant. This may mean overall fewer employees need to be made redundant, since some of the employees are employed elsewhere that perhaps needs more employees. Failure to offer alternative work that the employee could reasonably perform may lead the employment tribunal to infer that the employee was never actually redundant and dismissal was for a different reason which may not have been fair. I'm now going to have to try and explain bumping which is a very strange phenomenon. I found it very difficult to get my head around the first time I read about it. Essentially it's that there is a redundancy scenario in that the number of employees performing a job requires reduction. So for instance, it was explained in the uh, book I used to study using uh, machine workers at a factory that they're going to sell a machine or they're going to reduce the machine so they need fewer people employed to actually operate the machine. But instead of making one of the machine workers redundant, they instead offer them a job as a forklift driver at the factory, which the machine worker accepts and they are made a forklift driver. And a forklift driver is made redundant in order to make room for the former machinist to become a forklift driver. It's very surprisingly complex and it doesn't actually sound like a redundancy scenario at all, but it actually is because it fulfills the criteria. The employee is dismissed, the employee in that case being the forklift driver, because there is a reduced need for employees to perform a job, albeit the need is for machine workers and so, as a result of which they are made redundant, even though the need for forklift drivers hasn't changed at all. It is a completely different job that has a reduced need. Bumping is bizarre, but it does need to be considered in a redundancy since it is validly part of redundancy practice. So we'll therefore move on to redundancy payment. A redundancy payment is an entitlement of an employee who has been employed by their employer for at least two years. That's two continuous years, obviously. And if you go back to the 2P, then a 2P transfer counts as continuity of employment. So a person who has been employed at their current employer for less than two years, but was 2P'd over from an employer they had been previously working for, that still counts as part of the entitlement. So the calculation of the statutory redundancy payment 
is exactly the same as used for the basic award in the unfair dismissal claim. The calculation is, you take the age factor, multiply it by the years of service, and then multiply that by the employee's gross weekly pay. So in order to explain the age factor, the age factor rewards service depending upon the age at which the work was performed. For any full year that they spent working for the employer, at which the employee was 41 or over, they are given a factor of 1.5. For any years they worked between the ages of 22 and 41, the factor is 1, and for service below the age of 22, a factor of 0.5 is given. Year's service is simply the number of years the employee has worked for their employer. Again, 2p in, is included as part of this. But it is subject to a maximum of 20 years service. So anyone who has worked more than 20 years is treated when calculating the payment as having worked for 20 years only. And obviously it's the most recent 20 years. And then gross weekly pay, i.e. the weekly pay without having taken off any reductions for tax, insurance, etc. The gross weekly pay is however subject to a maximum of £475. An employee who was given a gross weekly wage above this is treated as earning £475 for purposes of a payment. So to give an example calculation, an employee aged 63 works for his employer for 30 years, so starts when he was 33 years old and was given a gross weekly wage of £600. He has obviously worked for 30 years, so only the last 20 years will be taken into account, and that would have taken him back to the age of 43, meaning the whole 20 years is given an age factor of 1.5, and then you multiply 1.5 by 20 for the 20 years service, and then multiply that by £475, the statutory maximum gross weekly wage, and you would come out at £14,250 as a redundancy payment. This is in fact the maximum possible in a calculation, since it's the maximum of 20 years at, one, at an age factor of 1.5 multiplied by the maximum gross weekly wage. That is, of course, for the statutory redundancy payment. A contractual redundancy payment is separate. An employment contract can stipulate the employee is entitled to a redundancy payment in excess of their statutory entitlement, and there is nothing wrong with this since it is to the employee's benefit, after all. But care must be taken when drafting such a clause to ensure that the criteria used to calculate the contractual redundancy payment isn't accidentally or intentionally discriminatory. For instance, where the entitlement varies based on age, there will be a question of age discrimination and the employer must therefore be able to justify the terms of a scheme as being a proportionate means of achieving a legitimate objective if the scheme is ever challenged in the employment tribunal. And then, of course, the final stage is terminating the employment. The employees selected for redundancy should then be informed that they are to be dismissed and given their notice entitlement. A failure to give adequate notice can give rise to a claim for wrongful dismissal. I'll just 
just reiterate that it's wrongful dismissal which relates to a failure to give adequate notice according to your statutory or contractual rights to notice. It's distinct from unfair dismissal which I've been talking about at length as part of this. You can have a dismissal that is wrongful but not unfair and dismissal is unfair but not wrongful as well as a dismissal that is both or a dismissal that is neither. The absolute maximum statutory notice entitlement you can get is 12 weeks. So that's a statutory maximum at least. A, con a contractual term can extend this, of course. And finally, regarding appeals. You might think that there, ha there is a right to appeal against redundancy, but in the case of Robinson, Robinson and Ulster Carpet Mills in 1991, it was actually stated that employers aren't obligated to provide an appeals procedure for employees, but in practice it is more common for there to be an appeals procedure if redundancies are going to be made. One advantage of an appeal system is that any perceived mistakes in the selection all the process can be dealt with at the appeal and rectified if necessary, which prevent the need for tribunal proceedings and could preclude a claim for unfair dismissal if the dismissal is caught in time before they are actually dismissed. If an employer does create an appeal system, they are however obliged to ensure that it, it is complied. <coughs> Sorry, it is complying with the principles of natural justice. It must be ensured that the appeal is not heard by a person who was involved in selecting for redundancy, for example, and as a result you need to ensure that the actual redundancy is performed by someone who is not of the most senior rank in the company or business that is employing so that there is someone above them who it can be appealed to, because otherwise the appeal system becomes essentially, well, Ironically, it becomes redundant because there is no one who can legitimately hear the appeal. And that concludes this run through of redundancy law. Hopefully, the next area of law I'll be talking about in my next video will be something that's not employment related and more interesting. Although, what I would say is interesting in law and what I think most normal people would say is interesting in law, probably completely different. Nonetheless, hopefully this has helped you understand how redundancy works and the considerations that go into it. And I'll see you in the next video.